We have a rule in our home that mom doesn't cook on Friday nights. It's a part of our family's Friday night formula. This generally consists of us going out to an early dinner or grabbing takeout and bringing it home, piling up on the couch, and then watching a movie. When we add those few elements together, the result is always the same. An evening that everyone in our house, from the littlest Lacey all the way up, thoroughly enjoys. Because this formula works so well for us, we have repeated it countless times over the years. A formula is a fixed pattern that lends to consistent results. Formulas are very helpful to us. We see them everywhere. They can occur through words, through numbers. They are sometimes actions or ideas. They're the patterns that we use in everyday life, and like I said, we use them everywhere. In math or in science, formulas um, are represented through chemical or numeric equations. When we cook, we use formulas called recipes. Baby formula is the exact amount of ingredients that lends itself to the healthy growth of an infant. So these are so helpful for us, and we use them everywhere. And when we think of formulas broadly in this sense, a fixed pattern that leads to consistent results, we can recognize that we see them even in the Word of God. In the Bible, we see formulas for growing in wisdom, for living in peace, for increasing in holiness, for walking in obedience. And as I read and studied Exodus chapter 40, it occurred to me that it lays before us a formula as well, a fixed pattern that leads to consistent results. So tonight we are going to identify this pattern. We're gonna look at this combination of elements and then we're gonna spend some time closely considering the yielded results. We're gonna consider how this worked out in the lives of the Israelites as they finished up their work on the tabernacle. And then we're gonna spend some time considering how this could apply to our lives as well. So we're gonna begin our reading tonight in Exodus chapter 40, verse one. The Lord spoke to Moses. You are to set up the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, on the first day of the first month. Put the ark of the testimony there and the screen of the ark with the curtain. Then bring in the table and lay out its arrangements. Also bring in the lampstand and set up its lamps. Place the gold altar for incense in front of the ark of the testimony. Put up the screen for the entrance to the tabernacle. Position the altar of burnt offering in front of the entrance to the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. Place the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it. Assemble the surrounding courtyard and hang the screen for the gate of the courtyard. Take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and everything in it. Consecrate it along with all of its furnishings so that it will be holy. Anoint the altar of burnt offering and all of its utensils. Consecrate the altar so that it will be especially holy. Anoint the basin and its stand and consecrate it. Then bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance to the tent of meeting and wash them with water. Clothe Aaron and his sons with the holy garments, anoint him and consecrate him so that he can serve me as priest. Have his sons come forward and clothe them in tunics, anoint them just as you anointed their father so that they may also serve me as priests. Their anointing will serve to inaugurate a permanent priesthood for them throughout their generations. 
The first element that we see in our text tonight is the command or the instruction of the Lord. And perhaps you have noticed that there has been no lack of instruction. Not here in chapter 40 as Moses was assembling the tabernacle, nor earlier in the book of Exodus as the Lord gave his law to the Israelites. you probably caught caught up in the fact that this semester we read through 11 consecutive chapters, Exodus 20 through 31, devoted explicitly to the direct command of the Lord to the Israelites. Perhaps like me, you have noticed that there tends to be uh, two different types of people when it comes to rules and guidelines and 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 uh, laws. There are those first that believe that these things exist to be followed, and then there are those who believe that these things exist to be broken, right? I very firmly and probably quite obviously fall in that first category of people, and my husband falls very firmly and probably quite obviously into that second category of people, which has resulted in some pretty spectacular conflicts in our marriage over the last 16 years. I will never forget uh, when we were dating, well before we were engaged, we went out to a restaurant to have some dinner and we had a particularly inattentive waiter that night. Eventually, by the grace of God, he did bring us food, but we asked for ketchup and he went away and just never came back. So eventually, my husband gets up, walks into the kitchen, like right past the little swingy door of the kitchen. He looks around until he finds ketchup and he brings it out himself. I was absolutely mortified. And I told him so. I said, I am mortified right now. And he said, well, you may be mortified, but at least you have ketchup. <laughs> and I could, not, I could not argue with that logic, but I think I would have gone without the ketchup first because I am the type of girl who wants to follow rules even if they not, are not explicitly stated. Like, hey, if you don't work here, don't go past the little swingy door. Right? I believe that those laws, those rules are there for our good. Right? They, they tell us where the boundaries are so that we don't inadvertently cross over them. If you remember back several weeks ago when the Israelites arrived at the base of Mount Sinai, one of the ways that the Lord instructed Moses to prepare the people for his presence was by placing all of these boundaries around the mountain. Do you remember that? The boundaries were there to keep the people alive. It was for their good. Without the boundaries, the people would not have known how far that they were supposed to go, and it would have resulted in their death. So oftentimes, we have a temptation to view these things, rules and instructions and laws and boundaries, as punitive. As, as things that penalize us. They keep us from getting those things that we really want on the other side of that rule or law or boundary. But in God's word, we, we can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that these things are not meant to penalize us, but that, that they are always meant for our protection. They are there for protection. These things shield us from the evil effects that sin has had on humanity. They provide a layer of protection between us and the sinful 
desires of others, and more importantly than that, women, they provide a shield between our own souls and our own propensity to sin. So God's commands and his laws and his instructions, they are for our good. And we have seen throughout the course of this study that they are plentiful. Right? I'm in a season of life where I have decisions that I have to make. And as I read really closely over these last few weeks, all of these instructions that the Lord gave Moses just in this top part of chapter 40, how meticulous and how repetitive um, his instructions were. It, it made me wonder if perhaps that same level of instruction might just be available to me as well. If I were more quick to ask, to listen, to wait, and then obey, it made me wonder where might God be instructing me? What might he be saying to me that I have just rendered myself unable to hear? I am in my 40s, which means that I am just now old enough to begin realizing how stupid I am. <laughs> Ask my children, right? If God has instructions for me, if he has guidance, I certainly want to hear it. So let's pick up our reading in chapter 40, verse 16. Verse 16, Moses did everything just as the Lord had commanded him. The tabernacle was set up in the first month of the second year on the first day of the month. Moses set up the tabernacle. He laid its bases, positioned its supports, inserted its crossbars, and set up its pillars. Then he spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent on top of it, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Moses took the testimony and he placed it in the ark and he attached the poles to the ark. He set the mercy seat on top of the ark. He brought the ark into the tabernacle, put up the curtain for the screen, and screened off the ark of the testimony, just as the Lord had commanded him. Moses placed the table and the tent of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle, outside the curtain. He arranged the bread on it before the Lord, just as the Lord had commanded him. He put the lampstand in the tent of meeting opposite the table on the south side of the tabernacle and set up the lamps before the Lord, just as the Lord had commanded him. Moses installed the gold altar in the tent of meeting in front of the curtain and burned fragrant incense on it, just as the Lord had commanded him. He put up the screen at the entrance to the tabernacle. He placed the altar of burnt offering at the entrance to the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, and offered the burnt offering and the grain offering on it, just as the Lord had commanded him. He set the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it for washing. Moses, Aaron, and his sons washed their hands and feet from it. They washed whenever they came to the tent of meeting and approached the altar, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Next, Moses set up the surrounding courtyard for the tabernacle and the altar and hung a screen for the gate of the courtyard. So Moses finished the work. The next element we see in tonight's text is Moses's wholehearted obedience to the Lord. He did just as the Lord had commanded. And Moses' wholehearted obedience to the Lord comes right on the hills of the Israelites 
wholehearted obedience to the Lord that we read so much about last week. The, the text emphasizes that they all did just as the Lord had commanded. I think that one of the things that we certainly have learned through our study of Exodus, that it is always important for us to obey the Lord. But I think one of the reasons why it is emphasized that they did obey the Lord so absolutely in this portion of Scripture is because of the blatant disobedience that we saw back in chapter 32. Right, so if we step back and look at it from a structural perspective, what we have is 11 straight chapters of the Lord directly instructing the Israelites, which were quite literally interrupted by the Israelites breaking up the covenant, the debacle of the golden calf, and then the Lord's eventual restoration of the covenant, which are then immediately followed by six consecutive chapters of Moses and the Israelites doing just as the Lord had commanded. This is significant. Women, this tells us that their obedience here was more than obedience. It was repentance. The Israelites had a change of mind that led to a change of action. They had gone from being stiff-necked and hard of heart to being easy to lead and being eager to follow. And the Lord was pleased by their obedience. And here again, it's not because he is some egomaniacal, drill sergeant type of God, but because their outward obedience is a sign of their inner belief. And the Lord wants us to believe him. He wants us to trust him. He wants us to wholeheartedly and eagerly desire his favor. So disobedience demonstrates ambivalence toward the favor of God, but our obedience demonstrates our ambition for the favor of God. So we get to learn from the Israelites here. right? Actually, as I considered it, I thought that it was absolutely encouraging, right? So when we mess up, which we will, and it may be in a big way, a la the golden calf, or it may be a hundred different smaller ways, but when we mess up, we do what the Israelites did. We go back to the last thing that the Lord told us to do, and we begin again from there. This way, we choose the way of obedience instead of the way of disobedience because women, his mercies are new every morning. And he has made us provision for that. Let's pick up back at the end of verse 33. So Moses finished the work. The cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was unable to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud rested on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So far, we've identified two key elements in tonight's text, the command of the Lord and the wholehearted obedience of his people, which when combined together, yield a magnificent display of the glory of God. 
Now, we cannot miss the continually mentioned obedience of the Israelites and Moses uh, and the connection between that and this remarkable display of God's glory that we see in chapter 40. We just can't miss it. But I do want us to do a little bit of work so that we can better understand how and why those two elements combined to yield this result. Because the last thing that I want to do is send you out of here tonight with some sort of idea that God is a genie in a bottle whose glory we can somehow summon by simply using the correct formula. That is not what I'm trying to get out here. But women, I want you to consider, hasn't the Lord very graciously in absolutely stunning detail told us what he desires? Hasn't he told us what he wants from his people? And hasn't he very clearly laid out for us how he will move in the lives of his people if they choose to remain in covenant with him? So we have no reason to believe that he will not display his glory in our lives if we choose to continually walk in obedience to him. We have no reason to doubt that he will. But this is where we have to talk. Because you have to know something. You have to understand that to obey God is to resist Pharaoh. I know that you think we left Pharaoh back in chapter 15, but this is all pointing us to a much larger story. The book of Revelations describes for us this epic, cosmic, spiritual battle that is just raging in the heavens, right? And parts of it sound eerily familiar to what we read back in the beginning of Exodus of that physical battle that took place in Egypt between Pharaoh and the Lord. So we weren't there for the physical battle that took place in Egypt, but we are here now amidst that cosmic spiritual battle that is raging even at this moment. And when we obey God, it infuriates our enemy. I want you to think about how Pharaoh responded when the Israelites began resisting him. He wasn't going to take that, right? Isn't that when he really started to get nasty? Wasn't that when he started to show his teeth? And the Israelites, yeah, they got a little beaten and bruised, but I ask you, did the glory of the Lord not show up? It did. And he told us it was going to. Do you remember? He kept saying, they're going to see my glory. They're going to see my glory. Watch out. They're going to see my glory. The glory of the Lord most certainly showed up. So what does this mean for us? What are we supposed to do with that? I'll tell you what it means. It means that sometimes in the midst of our obedience, it's going to feel a lot like we're losing. That is why we have to know. That is why we have to believe. That is why it is so important to set our minds and our hearts and commit that we will remain faithful. And women, you have got to be willing to take a few punches and still remain in the fight. 
because the glory of the Lord is worth it. And we have his assurance that he will indeed display it. So let's go back to the text because I want to look a little more closely at what we mean when we say God's glory. So what is that? Suzanne hit on that briefly back in week seven, but here we see it coming up once again in the text. So I want to look a little bit more deeply at it. The glory of God can be defined as the beauty, the splendor, the significance of who he is, but there's something else to it that begins to get just a little bit more difficult to define. So the Hebrew word that is translated for glory there carries with it this idea of weight, of heaviness. So when we think of that, we think of the opposite of light, the opposite of frivolous. So I'm going to assume that many of you have had experiences like this before and you can understand what I'm about to say, but there is a weight that accompanies things that are truly beautiful. I remember getting a sense of this many years ago when I toured St. Peter's Basilica in Vatican City. St. Peter's is the home of a sculpture that was carved by Michelangelo back at the end of the 15th century called La Pieta, the pity. And the sculpture depicts uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus, holding the body of Christ after his crucifixion. And it was just one of the most strikingly beautiful works of art that I have ever laid my eyes on. I remember being absolutely amazed at how this piece of stone could actually be carved into something that so closely resembled human flesh. I had this feeling that if I could touch the arm of Mary, it it would have given beneath the weight of, of my fingers on her arm. So I stood there like looking at at this sculpture amidst just droves of tourists and the beauty of it was palpable in the room. You could feel it. I remember also having a sense of this at the birth of each of my three children. I mean that feeling when this new life enters the room, it just carries with it a significance that you can feel the weight of. So when I consider the glory of God, I imagine that those experiences offer me just mere glimmers of what his beauty and what his glory must actually be. And we're told here in verse chapter 40 that this glory filled the tabernacle. Now, just because it said that it filled the tabernacle, we must not assume that all of his glory fit in there. Do you understand what I'm saying? Like, we can squeeze ourselves into a really tight pair of jeans, but that doesn't mean that you fit. Okay? Isaiah 6.3 tells us that the whole earth is filled with the glory of the Lord, so there is no way that we are shoving all that glory into the tabernacle. And the tabernacle was designed to be 
God's dwelling place among men, but no matter how well designed or how beautifully executed it was, until the glory of God came and filled it, until the Spirit of God actually took up residence within it, it was nothing but a fancy tent. And women, you and I, and every human being on this earth, each and every one of us made in the image of God. We are designed to be God's dwelling place among men, but until the Spirit of God comes and takes up residence within us, we are nothing but tents. I'm not even giving you the fancy part. We're nothing but tents. In the same way that the size of the tabernacle could in no way contain all of the glory of God, God's presence in the tabernacle in no way constrained him from being elsewhere, right? God can no way fit inside a constructed space. But what God's presence in the tabernacle did was very clearly communicate God's willingness. More than that, it communicated his eagerness to be with men in some way. So I want you to hear this, that God is not just willing, but he is eager to meet with us. He is eager to display his glory within us. He is eager to pour out his spirit upon our lives. We can see it Right here in the text, it says, verse 33, Moses finished the work. Verse 34, the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. It happened just like that. There was no pause. There was no delay. There was no waiting period. As soon as the obedience was complete, God was eager and willing. He was waiting and he was ready to meet with his people. He is eager to meet with you. Now, this is not the first time in Exodus that we have seen the glory of God, right? We've encountered the glory of God several times before. In chapter 16, we saw it in the desert as a cloud. Uh, We saw it in chapter 24 as an all-consuming fire atop a Mount Sinai. And then in chapter 33, we got closer to that glory than, than we had ever seen before when Moses, when his obedience to the Lord and his unapologetic ambition to see the glory of God resulted in a magnificent display of the glory of God in his life. He beheld the glory of God so closely that it made his face shine. It reflected back to the Israelites a semblance of what he had seen. But now here in chapter 40, we're no longer seeing the glory of God from a distance as the Israelites had before. He is no longer high atop of Mount Sinai. He is no longer a mere reflection upon the face of Moses, but the glory of God is in the midst of his people. But even so, we come to a limit here. In verse 35, look at what it says. It says that Moses could not come in. 
Moses could not come in. Moses, who had stood in front of Pharaoh, Moses, who had led the people across the Red Sea, Moses, who had met with God on top of Mount Sinai. So if Moses can't get in, what do you think that meant for the Israelites? What must it mean for us? You see, the holiness of God must be reckoned with. God was present with his people. He was closer than he had been since the fall. And yet, neither Moses nor the people had immediate access to him. But he was there. An invisible God made visibly manifest. So let's pick up reading in verse 36. The Israelites set out whenever the cloud was taken up from the tabernacle throughout all the stages of their journey. If the cloud was not taken up, they did not set out until the day it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day, and there was a fire inside the cloud by night, visible to the entire house of Israel throughout all the stages of their journey. So how would the people know that God would indeed dwell among them after all the twists and turns that their story had taken? How would they know that his favor, which they had forfeited by way of the golden calf, had indeed returned? How would they know that God approved of and was pleased with the work that they had done on the tabernacle? By token of the visible cloud. A cloud in the desert wilderness of Sinai is like a cloud given in the thick heat of a Houston summer. It is a divine act of kindness, and it would both protect and it would guide them. God was indeed well pleased with his people. He had issued his command. They had responded with wholehearted obedience, and he had abundantly rewarded them. There is such a marked difference between the beginning of Exodus and the end. The people have gone from shackles to salvation, from fear to freedom, from ceaseless work to Sabbath rest, and from imprisoned gloom to all-consuming glory. And for those of us who are followers of Christ, that is our story too. The Exodus story is our story, but the New Testament tells us that our version of this story is even far more glorious than theirs. So listen as I paraphrase parts of 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Now if the covenant of the law came with such glory and splendor that the Israelites were not able to look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory— how will the ministry of the Spirit, the new covenant, fell to be even more glorious and splendid? Since we have such a glorious hope and confident expectation, we speak with great courage. And we are not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face, but whenever a person turns in repentance and faith to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is true freedom, emancipation from bondage. And we all, with unveiled faces, 
continually seen as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are progressively being transformed into his image from one degree of glory to the next. From one degree to the next. One step of obedience after another. This is the way of the Christian life. One of the things that we have really tried to emphasize throughout the second part of our study on Exodus is that um, freedom doesn't occur in one fell swoop. It's not just the moment of your salvation, but freedom in the life of a believer comes in the following. And as we see so clearly denied that as we follow, the Lord leads his people to glory. So as we close the book of Exodus tonight, there remains a pretty big question that is looming over the storyline. God is present with his people, and yet they cannot get into him. So the question we must ask is, Lord, how do we enter in? So it's very fitting for us to remember here that Exodus only gets us partway through the story. And as soon as we flip the page into the book of Leviticus, the Lord very graciously begins answering this question. You see, the entire book of Leviticus is actually dedicated to answering that question, Lord, how do we enter in? Leviticus lays before us the conditions that must be met in order for the people to enter in. So I leave you ladies with this encouragement tonight. Read on. The story keeps getting better. Let's pray. Father God, you alone are worthy of our praise and worthy of our worship, God, and we thank you that you have given us this time together to study your word, Lord. We thank you for your word, which reveals us to you, God. We thank you for the women in this room and for the relationships and the talks and the revelations, Lord, that you've given, God. I pray that as we continue on, Lord, we would be people marked by obedience, people who are ambitious for your favor, people who long to see your glory, God, because we know very well that you are faithful to reveal it. We love you, Lord, and we thank you. In the name of your beautiful son, Jesus, we pray.